Well, the situation in the world, of course, is <coughs> is very, should I say, intimidating right now. With uh, <coughs> the earthquake in Japan turned out to be even worse than one could have thought, because there are now there are now in the human equation of an earthquake potentially aggravating factors that that lead you to to very different types of scenarios. <coughs> one could almost <coughs> envision. Uh, that that earthquake was all, like you could have a situation so bad that you needed to evacuate huge populations, almost like you could think about the end of the world, that you need sort of a, a, a grand evacuation scheme because the situation in the world has become untenable, almost almost like that. We were also, of course, watching watching the situation in Libya <coughs> and... and uh, and now it looks it looks not it looks like whatever the outcome will be that there will be a, there will be suffering in that country which which of course is is very very sad we were hoping that it would that libya would go like like tunis and and egypt so one more comment on nietzsche we talked about nietzsche and the horse uh, last time and uh, I just looked up my <coughs> my sources to see if uh, if uh, if this could be documented, and I I found abundant documentation here. I've given you one of the one reference here by one of his uh, biographers, uh, probably the most uh, authoritative Nietzsche biography, where he uh, describes how Nietzsche in 1889 uh, was walking the streets of Turin in Italy and saw somebody flogging a horse and uh, and threw himself on the neck of the horse and after that his that's when his insanity started it seems like he had tertiary syphilis and that this was a uh, that his mental illness uh, probably was related to syphilis that he had contracted as a young man uh, anyway, what was the point of the whole thing? The point of this is analogy was that a Nietzsche who <coughs> whose rhetoric is is quite savage against Christianity has <coughs> sensibilities that many Christians have lost. That our pictures of God have been so atrocious at times that they are threatening to deface the image of God in ourselves, uh, and. You, I quoted last time some sources to that effect, where uh, that we we just need to take a step back and see what is it that we're really saying. <clears throat> Nietzsche was a very lonely man. Let me read you uh, a passage here uh, from Nietzsche from this book, Nietzsche in Turin. This is a book just concentrating on the time he spent in Torino and Turin in Italy at the end of his life. And here is what Nietzsche is saying, because by this time he was a very lonely man. His father died when he was five years old. His father was a Lutheran pastor, very nice man. Nietzsche writes very, very nice things about his father and the loss of when his father died also of a of a strange neurological condition that it would be interesting to second-guess second guess what the diagnosis could have been. <clears throat> but uh, here is Nietzsche toward the end of his life or toward the end of the time when he's still still intact. The year in, year out lack of really refreshing and healing human love, the absurd loneliness that, uh, that brings with it, that it brings with it uh, to the 
degree that almost everything, every remaining connection with people becomes only a cause of injury. All that is, all that is the worst possible business and has only one justification in itself, the justification of being necessary. What is Nietzsche saying here? He's saying, I'm an extremely lonely person. I do not have meaningful friendships anymore, and I'm, I feel it. I'm just very, you know, he feels the loneliness very intensely. And then when he has contact with people, it's only, it's only bad contact because he has to, he has to uh, say what he really believes. And, and, and what he says offends people so badly that, that it makes matters worse. You hear that? You hear what he's, he's saying there? So, so this is toward the, end, toward the end of his, when he's still intact. Now, there appears to be, or it, it is highly likely that, <clears throat> this image of Nietzsche hugging the horse in Torino has an antecedent in literature in Dostoevsky, who I have quoted here before from his book, The Brothers Karamazov. But in, in uh, the other big, big book of Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, there is a scene. Some of you have read Crime and Punishment. Who? Yeah, few of you have read Crime and Punishment, and I am not a Dostoevsky expert by any means, but I hurried. I actually was led to that connection. <laughs> I, I was listening to a lecture uh, <clears throat> this, this past week, one morning, uh, and this person that was very, very helpful. And he <clears throat> there is a scene in Crime and Punishment where the main character is a young person. He's a young boy. He's seven years old, and he's walking the streets in his hometown. The main character there is called Raskolnikov, and he's uh, seven years old, actually has a dream. He dreams that he is walking with his father in his hometown, and there is somebody, there is a tavern there, and there is a horse, a mare, outside the tavern, a very scrawny mare, looks very unfit for labor, uh, uh, in front of a cart, uh, this, this horse, and the owner of this horse is an extremely callous person who, when people come out from the tavern, he tells them, I'll give you a ride. Come on to my, to my carriage and I will give you a ride <coughs> with my horse. But the horse is not able to, to pull the load. So they start flogging the horse. And, and you, 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 will, you will have to steel yourself even to read Dostoevsky's description of how they flog that horse to death. Well, the child, Raskolnikov, the character in Dostoevsky's novel, he asks his father, why are they flogging the horse? And the father tries to, you know, get him, you know, get his attention onto other things. Well, in the end, he tears himself, the boy tears himself loose from the, from the father. And as the horse is expiring, bloody, you know, completely, completely, uh, uh, you know, abused to death by, by these people, the little boy runs over to the horse and hugs the horse and kisses the horse, you know, like, and most likely this book was published maybe 10, 15 years before uh, Nietzsche's uh, mental illness, but most likely that image is, is in, in some ways modeling his behavior when he runs and, flogs the and, and hugs the horse. <clears throat> anyway, our point should be should not i hope it is not not lost on us let me say it in 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 clearer language the christian vision of hell is an atrocious vision 
that cannot of an eternal hell, of suffering lasting forever, is an atrocious vision. It cannot be countered merely by you know, winning an exegetical argument or nar- narrowly on points. Do you hear me? It has to be. There has to be something else. There has to be another paradigm. There has to be, we have to say, something has come completely unhinged here. And one needs to start over, you know. And, and people who, who are sensitive to suffering and who still intuitively seem capable of reacting to suffering, like a Nietzsche or like Raskolnikov, who actually in, in crime and punishment becomes a murderer. But they know how to kiss and hug the horse. So you can learn something. We can learn something, something from that. And so we're back to to that that image. So anyway, look these books up. I think you will, you uh, you might uh, might find it find it worth your while. So I thought I'd give you a couple of references. The ending of Revelation. I'd like it to approach the two last chapters in Revelation. Uh, in, in three steps, under three headlines. First, the first headline is more than paradise regained. The second will be paradise regained. And the third uh, will be the ending and the endings of Revelation. <clears throat> and you might just wonder what, what that could be, because there is only ending, isn't there? Are there endings? Uh, <clears throat> so I, uh, anyway, I wish to, to uh, do it like that. Yes. Okay, I'll repeat it. Is a short-term hell better than a long-term hell? <clears throat> Let's say, is the Adventist version of this ending of all things, the Adventist version being that, it, that hell is not eternal, but there is torment. There is God inflicting torment in some ways that is commensurate with whatever the offense was. Is that better? Well, it is better. <clears throat> but it is only quantitatively better. It is not qualitatively better. So, so what we're asking for here, what I think one should contend for within, within Christianity, in the world, and within Adventism, is a version, is a view that is not only quantitatively different, that is to say suffering is shorter, but a completely different paradigm, qualitatively different. I don't think the quantitative parameter is, is adequate. I think that has to be dealt with and and. and and I don't think our, our faith uh, project, I don't think our pra- faith project deserves to go places before that has been dealt with. That's, let, let me just uh, say that in, in as, clear, as clearly as, as that. Yeah. Okay, let's start reading. Just one verse here, Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And we'll do this in slow motion, So, <clears throat> but let me hear comments from, from you first on this one. What, what's, your, what's your first observation? New heaven, new earth, what does that mean? First heaven, first earth passed away, what does that mean? The sea was no more, what does that mean? I mean, yes, you can ask questions from these texts, can't we? <clears throat> the Old Testament background for this text in Revelation 22, uh, 21.1 is uh, Isaiah 65.17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. 
And Isaiah is really a big voice in, in Revelation on so many uh, points, and certainly his voice is a big one in the ending of Revelation. Just to broaden the picture in chapter 66, the notion of a new heaven, a new earth, seems to have a Sabbatarian kind of, of flavor in 66, 22 to 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth. See that? It's echoing off the same text. New heaven and new earth in 65, 17. New heavens and new earth in 62, uh, 66, 22. Uh, for as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me. See, the notion of something that will endure, it will not go away. You know, the other, the former heavens has gone away now, has, has been, um, uh, <coughs> has come to an end, but the new earth will remain. And then there is the Sabbath perspective. So shall your descendants and your name remain from new moon to new moon. And from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. See that, that paradigm, the, the notion of uh, that the new earth, just like the, the first creation story in Genesis ends in the Sabbath, the second creation story in Revelation also ends in the Sabbath. So there is a sort of theological or a narratival symmetry to, to these, these creation stories. Now, what about this? Is, it, is the new world, the new earth, is it another world? Or is it, or is it a... What's your thinking on that one? I, I'll give you this statement here. Uh, but uh, before I read it, let me hear what, what you think uh, about that uh, and why, why you would think one way or another. You see what I'm saying? Did, does the old world disappear completely? Is that what is meant by new, or is there some other way of, of thinking newness here? That it just, you know, you threw the old earth in the wastebasket and God made something entirely new from scratch. The emphasis is, is less on new versus old. Uh, it's more on whole versus broken. That the new earth is a healed earth uh, uh, versus a broken earth. The old order is sent into oblivion not the earth. And you could, you could make quite compelling arguments for that, even within a sab Sabbath theology. You could say that the Sabbath is a, is a sign of God's commitment to what he has created. It's God's commitment to non-human creation, God's commitment to the earth, God's commitment to human creation. And God delivers on that commitment. And so, you know, delivering on that commitment means not discarding the earth, but it means healing the earth and making it, making it well again. You see what, that, that is a possibility. There are several people who have argued this. Uh, Leonard Thompson is one of them. There is David Russell, and there is also a, a, a Lutheran uh, interpreter in Chicago, Barbara Rossing, who has, uh, who has uh, developed these, that, that idea, I think, quite, quite persuasively. What will be no more? There are seven things in the, first, in the last two chapters of Revelation that will be no more. The first one, the sea was no more. The second, death will be no more. The third, mourning will be no more. The fourth, crying. 
And the word for crying here is uh, crying out, you know, in, a, in an extreme way, in a sort of, with, with very, very much sort of disconsolate uh, crying out. Crying will be no more. Pain, which also could be hard labor, because uh, the word ponos is, uh, has a broad range. Pain will be no more. All things cursed will be no more. You would, uh, I, I, I just kept the, the, the way, I just translated it very literally. This is not a good translation. It's not good English, let's say. Uh, there will be no more curse for number six would be better English. But that's actually how, how the Greek runs. All things cursed will be no more. I just want you to hear the, there will be no more. You know, the body language will be no more, will be no more, you know, to do, to do that. So, night will be no more. That kind of, uh, that thing. <coughs> so, let's do it together. The sea was no more. Death will be no more. Mourning will be no more. Crying will be no more. Pain will be no more. All things cursed will be no more. Night will be no more. There are many types of, trans of, of interpretations of the book of Revelation, but as I wrote to somebody this week, even bad interpretations of Revelation have had a hard time taming the healing uh, sort of power of the last two chapters of this book. I, and I have been a Bible reader for many years now, and, and I, I just <coughs> I, I look back on my <coughs> Norwegian Bibles, and, uh, and I have been a very, very fond of those two last chapters. They are usually very damaged and fall out of my Bible, so I had to buy a new one. And, and over and over like that, because it's hard not to be enticed by a vision like this, a vision of healing uh, like you have here in, in the ending of Revelation. So spelt out in such, in such loving detail by, by John. So we're in a new, new landscape here. And it seems to me that this, would be, this vision would be completely defeated if if not for the fact that suffering has actually ended. You know, how, would you, how can you read this text if it says that death will be no more, or mourning will be no more, or crying will be no more, if that only represents one, one side of human reality, if there is another side of human reality where there is crying like you've never seen before. See what, what, what you know, that's the parameters of, of that, the end of suffering. So... What are our options <coughs> for the statement that the sea was no more? The sea <coughs> is a symbol of chaos. It is a symbol of the abyss and of the cosmic conflict itself. And there are several verses in Revelation to that effect and quite a few verses beyond Revelation. I have not given you all the verses here, but you, you see in the book of Daniel too that there is a there is a sea as a sort of troubled, troubled area. And then the sea could also serve here as a symbol of deliverance. In Exodus imagery, there are some people who have argued that possibility. It could also be a symbol of people. The, the, the waters, the many waters in Revelation 17 are peoples. And, and 
probably with a somewhat of a hostile connotation that there is an enemy texture to it. Uh, it could also, the sea is also a symbol of trade and exploitation, like in Revelation 18.21. Uh, there is all this trade that has happened on the high seas. Now, which of these four options do I think is, is, has been best argued? I think option number one is the one that has been argued the best and is and, and probably the one to prefer. So, yeah, there is a fifth one here too, that the sea as a symbol of separation and exile. So, John is on Patmos. He is, you know, presumably an exile. And, and now there is no more sea, so there is no more separation and no more exile. You could, you could at least... Uh, pastorally and sort of homiletically you could make that case and it, and it would not be wrong to do but I'd like us to pursue number one there a little more and look at the statement here from <laughs> there are a couple of, of monographs that have been written on uh, the new Jerusalem and the no, new earth there are not many books on that subject that are that are uh, uh, dedicated to, to that subject alone, but here is a book by Pilkan Lee. He says that sea often exists in relationship to evil powers, such as the beast or dragon within the book of Revelation. In Daniel 7.3 and following, four beasts came up, of the, came up out of the sea, and Isaiah associates the wicked powers with the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waters toss, toss up mire and dirt. Consequently, no more sea does not mean the vanishing of this earth, but rather of the evil power. This is the natural result of the total defeat of the satanic, satanic trinity in 1660. Uh, I won't read those text references. As a result, there is no more death. So what, what is it sort of... So how should you prioritize these? How should you highlight the seven things that will be no more? Well, according to this way of thinking, no more sea is the, is the one that leads the way because this is sort of the cosmic conflict uh, contribution to it. And then everything else follows from that. No more death, no more mourning. Sort of the battle is over. That's the kind of connotation that are suggested this by this. You might wish to comment on that. What is the, if that seems seems plausible to you? It is not necessarily definitive, but it is a. It is the strangest. Uh, I I would say it is the 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 biggest change in the in the new heaven, new earth is that there is no more sea. Isn't that a little surprising? Isn't that, that stands out in the, in the picture? There is no more sea. Is he saying, well, there is no more Pacific Ocean, no more Atlantic Ocean, that kind? Is it only to report that, sort of a geographical datum? Or is it a theological, theological datum that has, that has uh, relevance for us as a, in terms of our, our experience? There is no more sea. There is no more conflict no more battle. Uh, the war is over. That sort of announcement you could see as the, as the connotation of, of, of that, that statement. In Isaiah, just to corroborate that a little, I think this is a, uh, this is a corroboration of that. In the chapter, <coughs> the chapters in Isaiah that, that align themselves with, with Revelation, Isaiah 65 
and 66 align themselves with Revelation 21 and 22. So you don't do, you're not wasting your time if, if you read those chapters in Isaiah in conjunction with, with the, the Revelation. You might also want to add Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, which I think is the sort of seed, seed text for all of this. So Isaiah, Isaiah 11, 1 to 10 is the go-to text for very much uh, of, of the of uh, Isianic echoes in Revelation. But then you have these two chapters. You have these two chapters in Revelation. Isaiah 65, 66, Revelation 21, 22. And then, of course, in the back of all of this, you have Genesis 1 and 2, which also feed into, into uh, the notion of the new earth. So, so here are these two, two great Old Testament sources, Genesis, one and two, and Isaiah, the ending of Isaiah. <clears throat> now, from Isaiah 65, 25. Now, listen to this text. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. What does that sound like? Well, it sounds like Isaiah 11, for one thing, because that's exactly like what Isaiah 11 says. And Isaiah 11 is a... Is a, is a the the text in the last part of Isaiah is a, is less is a less disciplined text. It goes to the same themes, but it is not quite as as disciplined in its in its writing, maybe as the first part of Isaiah. But it sounds like Isaiah eleven, and it sounds like what? I mean, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Sounds like what? It sounds like paradise. You know, it sounds like the Garden of Eden. It sounds like the pre-fall state, doesn't it? So, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Well, that's also sort of a, a pre-fall thing. Nobody is, because uh, how does Isaiah, that scene in Isaiah end? They shall not, Isaiah 11, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, because the earth, earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the, how does it say that? Look it up. Isaiah 11, uh, 11, 9. Let's read that. Wolves and sheep will live together in peace, and leopards will lie down with young goats. Calves and lion cubs will feed together, and little children will take care of them. Cows and bears will eat together, and their calves and cubs will lie down in peace. Lions will eat straw as cattle do. Even a baby will not be harmed if it plays near a poisonous snake. On Zion, God's sacred hill, there will be nothing harmful or evil. The land will be as full of knowledge of the Lord as the seas are full of water. But they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain is a notion that nobody is hurting anybody else. And that's, uh, that's the, and then of course there is talk about the wolf and the lamb in Isaiah 11 as well. <clears throat> so that's clear. But what about this strange sentence? that Isaiah 65 throws in there that is not found in Isaiah 11. You do not find that other sentence there. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. Now, why did he throw that in there? That's, that's a sort of a, 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 in some ways, a non sequitur, some, a textual fragment that parachutes into this text. You know, what, where did that come from? The serpent, its food shall be dust. And then they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, which repeats Isaiah 11.9. So 
Now, do that, do that thing. The serpent ate food, shall be dust. Where did that come from? Is the serpent symbolic or literal? Well, in, in, in this paradigm of paradise lost, because Isaiah is clearly thinking about paradise lost, and now he's describing paradise regained. And then he throws in this notion, the serpent, its food shall be dust. Well, where did that come from? Well, that's easy. Yes, Genesis, Genesis 3. What does God say to, to the serpent? Is it 16 or 17? Which verse is it? Genesis 3.14, can you read it? Then the Lord said to the snake, You will be punished for this. You alone of all the animals must bear this curse. From now on you will crawl on your belly, and you will have to eat dust as long as you live. Yeah, so there is the first curse here, the curse on the serpent, and then the serpent's food shall be dust. But you have a wonderful, a wonderful expression in English. I wonder where it came from. He shall bite the dust. You have that expression? What does it mean? You'll bite the dust. It means you will lose. It means that you will lose. And the serpent, that's what he is announcing here, isn't it? But the serpent, it will bite the dust. That I think you could do do very well in English by saying the serpent will bite the dust. That it means that that this text is, is proclaiming the end of the cosmic conflict and proclaiming victory for, for God's side in the conflict. Uh, so, so anyway, this is one more datum. The serpent, its food shall be dust, uh, is another uh, piece of evidence for this kind of reading that no more see relates to the cosmic conflict and the ending of the cosmic conflict. And the serpent biting the dust is part of that. That's part of that. Uh, that way of thinking, and that, that's what you have there in Isaiah's vision of the restoration uh, uh, and, uh, and God's victory. I added a lot of uh, exclamation marks there on, on Isaiah 11, because it's important. One more thing here before we move on to the city. Isaiah 65:16 says, Then whoever, this is also part of the same textual, textual uh, uh, scenery, then whoever invokes a blessing in the land shall bless by the God of faithfulness. Elohe, amen. And whoever takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of faithfulness, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my sight. Now, the God of faithfulness is not just an assertion on behalf of God that God has been faithful to the promise, that, that, that God has sort of... has. Uh, has kept his promise. I think the notion of God's faithfulness here is also, is also in, a, in a sort of cosmic conflict framework that all those things that were said to be wrong with God, all the charges against God, are, are, have, been, have been refuted. God has not just... What should, what should I say? God has been faithful with reference to what? They shall bless themselves by the God of faithfulness. And God has been faithful with reference to what? I mean, has he been faithful with reference to current human experience? I think the answer to that is yes. Has he been faithful in that sense? But But that is too narrow a horizon. God has been faithful with reference to what problem? 
They shall bless themselves by the God of faithfulness. And as part of that story, the serpent will bite the dust. Do you follow me? You know, reading from Revelation, uh, I mean from Isaiah 65, 16, where there is an assertion that God is faithful. And in the end, in 65, 25, the serpent will bite the dust. Do you see what I'm saying? That God has been faithful in the cosmic conflict sense. That those accusations made about God by the serpent, by the opponent, has been refuted. God has been faithful in, 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 in a sort of... There are some specific charges that, that, that the serpent makes. He makes the charge of God being an arbitrary person, you know, self, self-centered and so on. So there is a sort of clarity to it. All that I'm saying, well, go and study those texts and then, and, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we might be, have a chance to, to look at it again also in, in Revelation 22. So how did God win the war then? But the serpent, its food shall be dust, should be read to mean that the serpent's defeat plays out in the realm of truth versus falsehood and not in the realm of power. The serpent lost because he was a liar from the beginning and the father of lies. That's, that's the parameters where I would like to, that I think is, is, is hinted in, in Isaiah's uh, notion that the serpent, its food shall be dust. I have written about this in my Sabbath book, in the chapter on the Sabbath in Isaiah, which I, is one chapter that I'm, I'm reasonably happy with and I don't want to change it very much. I have... I have written about it there, and maybe that is a place you could look it up if you're interested. Okay, more than paradise regained. Now let, we, uh, let me ask uh, you to read, if uh, a voice from the audience would read Revelation 21.2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So now, why am I calling this more than paradise regained? What is it that is more, more than paradise? Because there is paradise regained in Revelation 22 especially, because there you see the, the trees and the rivers and all those things. But here, why, why, what's, what's the justification for saying more than paradise regained? In paradise, what? Paradise, what? That's God's home. It's God's home. Okay. Is paradise regained with wisdom? But you're not seeing the elephant in the room. There is, there, is, there is a city here. And there isn't supposed... Is there a city in paradise? This Paradise is not a city landscape, or it's not urban. Is, is your paradise, the original paradise, an urban scene? But is this an urban scene? Well, it has urban... Urban terminology, at least, yes? So let's look at, at uh, some other images here and see if we can uh, do something about the meaning of the city. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Earlier in Revelation 3.12, I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So here's the promise to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, about the city that has yet to be described fully. Uh, It is only described in the ending of Revelation. And again, going to Isaiah, same text, same framework. Uh, Isaiah, this time 65, 18, and 19. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy 
and its people as a delight, the city and the people together there. It's very uh, close. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. Now, is anyone going to contest that these texts are feeding of of each other? Uh, Isaiah 65 and 66 and the ending of Revelation. So let's let's be be sure that we don't miss that. Okay, read more. Now let's read through the next uh, six, seven verses. And uh, I'll just ask uh, from the audience to read 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes Death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Yeah, my, my headline there, that more than paradise regained in Johannine diction. What is the Johannine diction here? It is, I will be their God, and they will be my children. See that the reciprocity there, I will be, they will be. See, that is a, a Johannine way of talking. I think we, I for, forgot to mention it here too. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. See, they, he with me, you with me, and I, you know, you remember that in the Gospel of John, there is that kind of reciprocity. It is, I think it is Johannine diction here. Revelation 21, 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Yes, and I'm reading this uh, as death as ending here. That that's the meaning of, of it. And then Revelation 21, 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Yeah, let's just say, so there is a guide, a guided tour here, as there often is. There is, a, there is an angelic tour guide in much of, of Revelation. Now the seven bowls, where do they start? The seven bowls, where in the text do they start? Seven bowls starts in Revelation 15. And then, and then in Revelation 17, there is a guided tour that begins in Revelation 17, the guided tour of the fall of Babylon. I will show you Babylon, you know, the fall of Babylon, Revelation 17, 1. And then now there is a same figure, one of the bowl angels. So the... The seven last plagues, as it were, the seven bowls, really doesn't end till the end of Revelation. There is a, we kind of say that those figures disappeared, but the ending of the story is, is, is sort of starting there in Revelation 15 already. So there's one of the seven angels that is guiding us here. And then Revelation 21:10. And in the spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, thank you. And now, the rest of our time, let's talk about the city, the great reversal, the garden versus the city. And I'd like us to 
talk about first the genealogy of the city in the Old Testament. Who builds the first city? Who is the first city dweller? What's the genealogy? I mentioned to you last time that Nietzsche wrote a book called The Genealogy of Morals. And here we have a subject of, it must have been in my mind when I, called, I wrote Genealogy of the City. Cain knew his wife, Genesis 4.17. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch and he built the city and named it Enoch after his son Enoch. So who is the first city builder in the Bible? Cain. Not, so the, the genealogy of the city is not very prestigious, is it? It's not very nice, because the first city builder is Cain. Genesis 10, verses 8 through 12. Cush became the father of Nimrod, and then he was the first on earth to become a mighty warrior. That is Nimrod. It's a, Nimrod is the subject of that sentence. He was a mighty hunter, and here I'm drawing on some work by a French sociologist who I think was a good reader of the Bible and a good reader of Revelation, Jacques Ellul. Have I mentioned him before? I have mentioned him a number of times. Jacques Ellul, he has written a book called The Meaning of the City. And he is discussing some of these texts here. So he says that, <coughs> that the notion of, of uh, Nimrod being a mighty hunter is too tame. That shows him in a sort of, you know, he's a, just a he has a hunting as his hobby, but Nimrod is not a, is just you know, hunting on a on a hobby basis. He is a conqueror. He was a mighty conqueror before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunt, a mighty conqueror before the Lord would be a better way to see it. The city is here a symbol of conquest. So the first city is the city of Cain. And the second city, the second time the subject of city building comes up in the Genesis, we have the city as a symbol of conquest, as a symbol of, of oppression, you might say. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, all of them in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. So here is this great city builder, and you are right, Nimrod is a great city builder, uh, a greater city builder even than Cain. But none of these people uh, do much to improve the prestige of the city, do they? The city is still a sort of negative project in the Bible, isn't it, here, so far? Well, it is. <laughs> Genesis 11.4, now we are building the Tower of Babel. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, and a tower which is with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Here I will say that the city is the symbol of human autonomy. We will do it ourselves. There is no city coming down from heaven here. There is a city doing what? There is a city going up to heaven here. So this city is going to go all the way up to heaven. It is like, it is a sort of, it's a, it's a grandiose human pro project. And then there is the notion of the city as enemy. In Daniel 4.29 and 30, at the end of 12 months, he, that's Nebuchadnezzar here, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king said, it's not this the great Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty. This is a, what is it? 
This is the city as hubris too, of course. This is a very hubristic statement. Is not this the great Babylon that I have built? But Babylon is also the city that that has a that is sort of a a metaphor for demonic action, for the cosmic conflict, even the prince of Babylon as a as an enemy city. So all of these things are uh, are text uh, speaking to the subject of of the city in the Old Testament. Jacques Ellul says in his book, The Meaning of the City, that all these cities he constructed were marked by the same stamp, power. The life of a powerful city is but a constant succession of revolts against God. Her life is the normal result of her origin and development. And who was the originator of the city? Cain, the first murderer. He is the first city builder. You see what is happening here? What sort of ideology you can can construct when it comes for for the city. Now, what's the meaning of the new city? Because we need to do the new city. We just did that, and and you'll have to meditate on that, uh, <coughs> on uh, each one for ourselves. What does the fact that it is a city essentially mean? We are in the presence of a series of meanings. Now, this is not from his book, The Meaning of the City. This is his comment on in his book, The Apocalypse. I'm still reading from Jacques Ellul. The first is that we observe a contrast between the first creation and the second. In the first, God created a garden for man. Man lives in nature. In the second, he is installed in the city. And here, so what does is, what is, what is, uh, that mean? <coughs> so here is a radical thought. What does this signify? I'm still reading from Jacques Ellul. Very simply, that God does not annul history and the work of man, but on the contrary assumes it. Can you take that? So isn't this a great reversal? What is the city essentially? It is essentially a product of sin. The city is, is, is the human sort of project, the human project of its own. But what does God do when he makes the city in the new earth, the new reality? He redeems the human project in some ways. Do you see what, that he's trying to say that? And this is the outside and the inside of the Sydney Opera. I'm not saying that you will see the Sydney Opera, Sydney Opera in the, in the uh, uh, New Earth. I'm not sure what we will see, but don't be surprised. You know, don't, don't. Uh, you know, Jesus says, "I go away to prepare a place for you." And when I have gone away and have prepared a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself, that where I am, you shall be also. What sort of place is he preparing? You know, what sort of, what sort of reality? Now, the, <laughs> the most disgusting city currently in, in the world, I think. Well, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I think in many ways Las Vegas is a very disgusting city because it is, its product is to entertain. And in a world like ours, that's not a very good project. project. But Las Vegas could be in some ways a model for the heavenly city in the sense that it does what? It copies all the prestigious cities in the world. You know, it copies Venice, it copies ancient Rome, it copies Greek columns, all kinds of things. You know, what Jacques Ellul is saying 
is that we are not saved just to a disembodied existence. That is, doesn't it matter at all what human beings have been doing? Was it all in vain, human civilization, all the things that have been discovered? Is it just sort of, you know, starting over? There is nothing there. None, nothing of the human enterprise was salvageable. What he's saying, the imagery of the city is that God saves us with our works. You know, that is an amazing thought. And, and, and a thought that has not gotten much exposure in, 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 in interpretations. Consequently, this history of humanity is not in vain, annulled by the st- a stroke of the pen, as if nothing of our efforts, our suffering, our hopes had ever existed. On the contrary, all is gathered up. Then man is saved with his works. Paradise is not a formless cloud, a rose and a blue fog, a non-place. Ellen G. White says heaven is a place. Very well said, you know, in an anti-Platonic sense. It is not a Platonic sort of reality. It is a good city, a solid place, where the whole creation of man is recreated. So you have the creation of God recreated, paradise regained. But you have in some sense a redemption for human, for the human experience, for the human enterprise. So if you have to, if you go to a concert in the Sydney Opera in the New Earth. I hope to see you there. (laughs) (laughs) The new city as the end of failure. The first picture here is from Kuwait. The second is from uh, Pakistan. Man had never succeeded. He had always experienced failure. And the actual urban monstrosity is testimony to this. Thus, that which had been the historic failure of man becomes the triumphant success. There is finally communion. There is finally assembly. And not only of one generation, but of all. Do you see that, that picture there? Now, there is, you know, you get the idea. <laughs>